there was a little sense in the back of my head that was okay this film is gonna be like accepted and have like the industry like wrap its arms around it and it'll be okay but most of me was just like I'll just keep working on it and you know as long as like people can help me and I can learn more and I can like figure out how to make this into a capital F film then you know I'll just like keep driving towards that. Welcome to Rough Cut. I'm Sky. I'm Jenny. <laughs> Jenny, uh, we have a really exciting guest on today, as all of our guests are exciting, but this one is particularly one that I'm excited about. Who do we have on today? So I sat down with Bing Liu. He is the director of Minding the Gap, a feature-length documentary about his friend group from his hometown. And then it quickly becomes this deeper story about the cycles of domestic abuse and toxic masculinity within families and communities. Mm-hmm. And it was it was nominated for an Oscar last year. Yeah, it did incredibly well. I mean, this is Bing's first feature-length documentary. And just the distribution. I mean, it's you can watch it on Hulu. I was on a Delta flight recently, and it was like a choice on a Delta flight. What a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's great that Delta is... Endorsing a great documentary film. Yes. So it's pretty incredible that this this was Bing's first film, and and it did so well. Mm -hmm. And also just, you know, the idea of making personal documentaries is such a... It's such a niche, such a genre unto itself. I mean, I loved the film, and it was interesting how he placed himself within it, not in not too much, but also enough so that it became particularly, you know, from his perspective, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to sit down with Bing is because we know so many people who are making films that are very personal to them, either about their family or their friends. So to know how to strike that balance where you can include yourself in the film because you are a part of the story, but not have the film be about yourself is tricky. And and also to take the personal perspective and apply it to everyone and create that relatable chord so that everyone can kind of can relate. And and obviously he did that in a beautiful way. He did. Yeah. He pulled it off. And and it wasn't it wasn't easy for him. And and we go through the sort of the trials and tribulations of, of that. But obviously it worked out. I mean Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. Indeed. It's pretty incredible. Well, should we jump in? Yeah, so this is Bing Liu, and you're listening to Rough Cut. Hey, I'm Stephanie Strauss. I'm a video producer, director, and sometimes shooter, and I'm here to tell you about Musicbed. Musicbed has made it easier than ever for you to find the song you're looking for. With intuitive and easy-to-use browse and search, amazing indie artists and bands, incredible composers like Ryan Taubert and Chad Lawson, and thousands of songs to choose from. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a Rough Cut listener, you'll get a one-month subscription for free, or 20% off a single song license. Just enter promo code ROUGHCUT when you check out. So you were filming Minding the Gap over 12 years. When in that period did you decide, okay, I've, I've got something here, like I think this could be a film? Uh, I mean, there wasn't one specific moment. I think there were uh, like moments of like metaphor- metamorphosis. Because um, originally it was just going to be this other another side project I was going to do where 
you know, I was going to interview skateboarders about their relationships with their families and how that had a bearing and, you know, how they were growing up. Um, so I had this half hour, uh, like survey film. And then, uh, a friend of mine told me about this, uh, fellowship that Kartumquin Films was doing and in second year called Diverse Voices in Documentary is for Midwest filmmakers of color to, you know, develop their current project and to, uh, to take it to the next, to the next stage. Um, so I brought it to them, uh, after getting into the fellowship and that was where I learned that, you know, there's this other mode of making documentaries because before, um, getting acquainted with Kartumquin, I just thought of documentaries as, you know, just more akin to sit down interviews, B-roll, you know, I, I thought of it in very generic terms, but then I started watching films that Kartumquin had done, you know, namely Hoop Dreams and The Interrupters and, um, I started learning about this, you know, phrase cinema verite, this like style of filmmaking. And I was like, oh, you know, this is, this is, this feels like, you know, storytelling um, in a narrative sense. Um, and so I just started thinking about like, well, maybe I can turn this project into, you know, something that's more like that. And at the time I was working, I'd been working for a few years in the uh, fiction space on TV shows and movies in the camera department. And so I just started shooting like the way that I, you know, saw the camera people shooting in those shows. Yeah, and, and so then I just kept, like, shooting and shooting, and I had to commit to, like, uh, fewer people, and eventually those two people became the ones that are in the film, Zach and Kier, and... Uh, How did you start to eliminate people? What what were you what were you looking for in your characters? Well, I gathered everyone on an island, and everyone had a tiki <laughs> light. No. Uh, <laughs> Pick names out of a hat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was out of expediency. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I was following people in like Portland and Arizona and New York. And were I, these friends? Like, were these people you knew personally? Some of them. I mean, there were people. There were people like in the con- in the network of the skateboarders I'd known over the years since I was a young teenager. Sort of like you know how musicians have this network that they have across the country from sleeping on couches and touring or whatever. Um, but at the time, I mean, I was in my early mid-20s at the time when I first started I was kind of like still living that skate life a little bit like mm-hmm. crashing on couches and traveling around the country yeah I mean so I, I would just meet people randomly and sometimes they would just have really interesting really interesting stories and I would just pull them to the side and interview them and um, all the ones that felt really authentic and real and were saying something you know those would go in in the film but were were you at that point talking to them about domestic abuse and toxic masculinity or were you just was it a skateboarding film at that point uh yeah i mean it was i in my teenage years i'd like done the thing where i like sat kids down and talked to them about like what does skateboarding mean for you um and then in the last project i did um that was sitting skateboarders down i was talking about like what all these lenses were doing to us because like i noticed that you know at the time there seemed to be more cameras and people at skate spots and it was just becoming a thing and so this time around it was very much you know personally I just wanted to like know how to grow up and like become an adult man and like not accidentally become someone like my stepfather mm-hmm. and so that was what was driving me um so like all the questions that I asked were trying to get at some sort of answer around that you know namely like you know how did you grow up like who do you love more your mom or your dad why who taught you how to love you know those are sort of and so um it it didn't strike me and it was surprising that so many other people did have you know violence in the home 
um, just unhealthy behaviors they like hadn't dealt with yet. I mean, that was very common. Hmm. So when did you decide to like take that project to the next level where you were like, okay, this is this is a thing and maybe I'll hire someone to help me sort of mold this into a film? And what did you need at that point? I don't think I ever made that conscious decision. Um, I think it was just like you know, an opportunity would pop up, like this fellowship popped up and I was like, huh, okay, I'll apply for that. And then during that fellowship, like I learned about this bigger documentary industry and there was an opportunity to apply for this other thing where I went to Tribeca and like pitched for, you know, industry folks. And so I applied for that and got that. I think all along the way, like there was a little sense in the back of my head that was, you know, okay, this film is going to be like accepted and have like the industry like wrap its arms around it and it'll be okay. Um, but most of me was just like, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll just keep working on it, and you know, as long as like people can help me and I can learn more and I can like, you know, figure out how to make this into like a, a capital F film, then you know, I'll just like keep driving towards that. Did you have a clear vision at that point of what the film would become? That it would become this story that is not only about skateboarding, but is about like the cyclical nature of uh, domestic abuse and and toxic masculinity. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the question that I was trying to get at from the beginning. Um, It just, I I really want, I I did have very high ambitions for having it really connect to everybody, skateboarders, non-skateboarders, you know, people. I I just, it just took a really long time to get to, you know, a a place where I felt like it was connecting to a satisfactorily, you know, like wide enough audience for me. I was reading an interview with you, I think it was in Filmmaker Magazine, and you were talking about the choice to include yourself in the film and how in previous versions you were not in it at all and you didn't want to be in it. Can you talk about that process of like deciding to put yourself in the film? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't ever any one decision. It was sort of, it felt like, much like the rest of the film, it felt like trial and error, you know. But at the point at that really was experimenting with putting myself in the film. I had a couple rough cut screenings at Kartemquin. You know, and some of the conversations during the feedback uh, were questions about, like, the origin stories of this documentary. Like, why, you know, why was the film trying to get at domestic violence and child abuse and growing up? Um, What is this town? You know, because at the time I didn't really have, you know, you get a little sense of the town more in the final version, but... Um, you know, people are like, why are the streets so empty? Why are like, there are no businesses open? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in talking about the origin stories and how, you know, it was very personal to my own experiences. And I grew up in this town, you know, I also skateboard, you know, people were like, huh, that'd be maybe helpful to know. And so it's like, okay, well, maybe it'd be helpful to try to put that in there. Mm-hmm. And so then it became about like finding the language to do it because I, I'd, I think my resistance was about making something that was felt navel-gazing. Yeah. And I was really terrified of that. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, besides this amazing film, is that a lot of people in this industry, it seems, are trying to make stories about their own lives and are struggling with this question about whether to put themselves in the film and how to do that. And I felt like this film really like struck a good balance. Like it didn't feel navel gazing, but you are, it is a personal story for you. And that really adds to the film. What did previous versions of this film look like with you in it that, that didn't work? Can you talk about that process a bit? 
Yeah, I, I mean, the very first thing I tried was just, I'm just going to put a card, like two cards up at the front of the screen, you know, like Rockford has this rate of domestic violence. I came back when I was this age to make this film. And that's mm-hmm. all you get. Um, at the, aside, like, the beginning of the film? Yeah, like the okay. very beginning of the film. You frame it. It's like, okay, this is yeah. a filmmaker coming back to like tell this story. Um, and you'd get like a little bit of just, you know, verite dialogue sometimes, but it didn't really pay off or build towards the characterization of the filmmaker. So that was the very first version. And two things, I think um, it didn't really like satisfy what the audience was actually craving, you know? What do you think the audience was craving? Um, just a sense of like wh- how this was affecting the filmmaker. Why was the filmmaker making this? Like what are the ethical dilemmas that the filmmaker is or isn't wrestling with? So that's one thing. It's just like on a story, emotional, like human audience level. Like I think people are just were not satisfied with that. The second thing is you have to be really careful about what you put at the top of the film. It's just like it's so weighted. Um, that's why like the top of the films for feature length films especially is just like so hard to. And they're often I find the last things that you get to make work. So that didn't work. Let me try voiceover. And so I tried voiceover, and it was like. You know, it came in at the beginning, it came in like somewhere in the middle of the film and uh, once again, like near the end of the film. And then people were not satisfied because it felt like I, especially with the film like this, where um, the two main characters were giving so much of themselves in such a vulnerable way. um, Like I wasn't really giving that in a voiceover. You know, people felt dissatisfied by my level of vulnerability. And so I was like, okay, what if I make the voiceover more vulnerable? <laughs> Which is weird because yeah. vulnerability is about control. It's about like yeah. giving up control and just like not, just like letting, you know, the water carry you. Um, and so it's like, okay, how do I do that in the very confines of this thing that, that I you have really complete have control complete control over? over. Yeah. So it's like, okay, what if I uh, write down a bunch of questions that are like really difficult and have someone else ask me and then just like, and so I did that. I got really emotional during the the interview that I had at the time. Uh, Josh Altman, who was hadn't come on to edit, uh, we were working on something else. Um, but he interviewed me, and uh, like I, I like needed to hug him afterwards. It was like really difficult. Um, so I cut that in the film, <laughs> and it then it just it did start to feel a little navel gazing. It felt like okay, why are you inserting this emotional stuff about? yourself so that was one thing and the other thing is like it didn't really help people understand uh the meaning of the film anymore um so i don't know i mean at that point i was sort of at a loss and then i tried something um because i would so sometimes i would go to rockford and uh i like couldn't find kier zach like kier was a teenager at the time like wouldn't answer his phone often and zach didn't have a phone and so Sometimes I would just, like, drive around town and, like, shoot things. But this one day, like, I couldn't find them, and I just went to this uh, skate shop this guy had opened up. And um, I was like, what if I interview him about myself? You know, so I did that, and I was like, okay, this is fresh, um, and it feels, like, authentic and human, and it's more about characterizing the filmmaker without it being actually you know, the filmmaker telling you something because there's there's an honesty in someone else, like, telling yeah. the audience about, you know. So I was like, okay, well, what if I interview my brother and mom next? By the way, this is very late in the process. It was just, like, Zach had already, like, ran away to Denver and came back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kier had already moved to Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really, like, 
in the post-production stages of like trying to crack the story. Yeah. Your decision to interview your mom, as you said, came in very late. What do you think that that added to the film? And what has been the audience response to that? Yeah, originally when I first did it, it was like, oh my God, like there's such a parallel between her and Nina. And so like, that's what I kept trying to make work in the edit. Um, And then once I started working with Josh Altman, uh, we did a lot of things together. But one of the things that he did was he just took that scene, recut it, and it's basically what you see in the film. Like what I had done was, you know, I I had made the interview like very expository, you know, it was like, it was just about characterizing who I was. So, you know, I would put in parts of the interview that were like, mom, what do you think about me skateboarding when I was 13? You know, what do you think is weird? I was out of the house skateboarding all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was just like this long two hour interview, but um, Josh brought out the aspect of it that felt like this confrontation, this attempt at me like reckoning with the past. Um... And it did everything that I had originally wanted, which is to show like what it means to be a person in an abusive relationship and to struggle with that sense of, you know, both like wanting a sense of solidarity and safety and love and affection, what we all want. But when there's kids involved, when, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're just in a confused time in your life, you don't have like other stable uh, sort of like perspectives to you know, help you make these very large decisions if you're going to make them. So it did that. Um, but it also made the filmmaker like, you know, it characterized the filmmaker's flaws and, and vulnerabilities and, you know, and it showed a sense of motive. Hmm. Um, I think also, I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you in this interview is how you navigate the subjects being your friends, but then also sort of like exposing them in a way and casting them in a very vulnerable and sometimes not very flattering light. I think that was one of the the, the benefits of working with Cartemquin, um, their founder, Gordon, and everybody that comes out of that community just thinks so heavily about ethics, you know, it's just like ethics all the time. And there's no right answer, which mm-hmm. is, you know, like, but I mean, one of the first things that I learned from them was you just you show the participants of your documentary of the film before it's done and like leave time to you know address any notes, um, not to give them creative control necessarily, but just to make sure, you know, like if there is something that they gravely disagree with, you have time to, you know, like compromise, come up with a solution, something. The other thing is like the feeling of what it meant for them to make this film. And I'm speaking for them, but it's it didn't feel you know like we shot hundreds of hours and most of it was just sitting around drinking beer goofing up you know what i mean like yeah it didn't, yeah I, I think like part it, it just felt like the filming process i think in the amount of time that we spent together like filming all aspects of their other lives like i think like made it clear to them that you know i wasn't just interested in you know like the, the most deepest uh, like these like wounded parts of their past um or their current situations so the other thing is that um, in 2016, I went to Getting Real, this documentary conference in L.A., and I went to this uh, this panel with um, Kirsten Johnson, this New York camera person who is just shot for you know all the uh, dozens and dozens of uh, classic documentaries over the years. And she made a film that's called Camera Person. It was sort of this essayistic reflection on her time being a camera person, what it means to point a camera at someone and, you know, capture their lives and their faces and their emotions. She talked about how um, a few years before she completed Camera Person, 
Um, she had gotten institutional support to uh, make this verite film about these two Afghan, uh, these two uh, women from Afghanistan, and she finished the film and went and showed them the film. One of them was like, "I don't want to be in this film anymore." And so Kirsten, literally everyone's worst nightmare. That's yeah. So that's that's like the the nightmare that I think like every documentary filmmaker has in the back of their head. So she so she like went back and like tried to recut the film like without the woman, but it wasn't quite working. And then you know eventually she just walked away from the film. Like it was a film that was never completed that she gave years of her life to, and that really empowered me because it made me confront that fear that I don't think we really have a dialogue enough about with ourselves. You know, despite all the pressure, despite like if your film is like funded and there's a financiers or whatever, or if it's just your independent project that you like slaved away at for years, um, you know, there has to be a part of you that accepts that that is a reality that, you know, you know what I've gotten out of it is just what the process has you know, shown me and maybe the film will never come out. Um, so that was huge. That helped me a lot. Just be able to rest easy at night. Yeah. Um, I think part of it also is just accepting how little we actually have control over. I think about that a lot, even when I'm just going on a small, like I'm getting on an airplane and going on a shoot somewhere. I'm like, what if this person doesn't show up? Like, what if like there's so many things that are out of my control that could go wrong? And it's it's kind of like you can do as much as you can to prepare and make the, the best film you can and get funding. But ultimately, there's some things that that you, you can't control. Yeah, yeah. I think that anxious energy is like very useful if, if harnessed in a way where, you know, over time you realize like, okay, these are the things I can't control. And, you know, these are the things I should like rack my head around. Um, and this is like something I feel like that gets asked a lot of, of documentary filmmakers, but is particularly relevant to your film. When do you know when to stop shooting and when to stop making this film because you have this you have like basically unlimited access to these characters it's not like you're filming one event in history that has like a beginning middle and end when did you know when to stop making this film i mean i i always say to this question like when we found out we got into sundance yeah (laughs) and there's a lot of truth to that i mean from 2015 to 20 17 i applied to every major grant and fellowship that you could think of you know got rejected at least once by all of them um but in 2017 pbs came through you know namely itvs and pov they were like okay we will give you six figures to finish this film it's like oh now i can like hire an editor to work with and you know like it's real it became real and when you when you contract with with pbs with ITVS, they hold you to this really specific schedule, you know, and you sort of are on a timeline to finish. Uh, so then it just became all real, and I started, I was able to, like, pay myself a salary to just work full-time on the film for the first time. And, I mean, I kept filming, I kept going back to Denver to film with Kier um, at least two, three times. I mean, it was, it might have, I might have just kept filming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> filming forever. Yeah. What was it like getting distribution for this film? Because it has really incredible distribution. I mean, I I took like a Delta flight or something recently. I think I saw it on the options. Yeah, it's on Delta. Uh, I mean, how it worked was 
I mean, the way the distribution works, like generally top level, is that you know you have certain rights. Um, the major, the, the main ones are you know U.S. TV rights, international TV rights, um, U.S. theatrical rights, international, and then uh, streaming, home entertainment, and educational. The biggest card in your hand in terms of like the worth is U.S. TV still to this day. Even you know like streaming dominates and broadcast is, is kind of slowly dying. So once we uh, got funded by PBS, they took U.S. TV rights and a bunch of like weird uh, windows for some of the other rights. Um, Hmm. And traditionally, that's made it very difficult for like once the streamers sort of became these big buyers and distributors, you know, like typically they would just want everything flat out. And so it's a big turnoff for them to see this film with, you know, sort of like this Swiss cheese of, of rights available. You know, it was sort of unprecedented um, for someone like Hulu to make an offer and be willing to work with um, public television in order to, you know, just fight over all the rights. Uh, Because at Sundance, we had a big splash. You know, we were getting all positive reviews. um, And it's it's still the biggest U.S. market festival for distributors to make purchases on films. And like everybody, you know, Apple, Netflix, everybody saw it and they loved it, but we weren't getting any offers because it was just, you know, they didn't want to deal with like this complicated contracting. And we got a few offers, but Hulu was the only like major streaming offer that we got. And then, you know, Hulu basically took everything else outside of US TV rights and a few like windows for streaming and educational uh and, you know, I didn't really know about the Delta deal until people started texting me with, like, you know, <laughs> photos. Really? Because, yeah, I mean, once it gets in the hands of a distributor, it's sort of like, you know, typically you're... But even they could have just sent you an email and just like, hey, FYI. I might have gotten an email. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah. you know, at that point it was like, you know, it's just some sub deal getting made yeah. somewhere, you know. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who is trying to make a film that is very personal to them, like about their family or about their friends? Looking back, what would you have done differently? Uh, I felt pretty happy with the process I went through. It's, you know, I'll I'll talk about the things I'm glad that I did, which is one, I went and saw a therapist. Um, I think when I was using the film as therapy, it like really wasn't, it didn't help the filmmaking. Um, but once I got clarity, once I started to like have the tools and more clarity and have um, a space to be able to like work out some of the things that I was trying to work out in the film, it, it helped the film too. Um, because then it became about like having uh, like what I was trying to process be be helpful and serve an audience rather than have it just be serving myself. Yeah. Um, What's next for you? What are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on four fiction projects, and I just fiction projects. Yeah, and I'm I'm almost in, we're we're heading towards picture lock on uh, my second documentary, which I'm co-directing with Josh Altman. Did you say he was your editor? On yeah, the first? he's my editor. Okay. We met in developing this what would become this feature doc um, in 2017, and then he, we just gelled so much that I asked him to come on as the editor for Minding the Gap. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was it like, that process, working with him? Like, what worked? Uh, I mean, I think his strength was that he's just so uh, classically, narratively, like, storytelling mechanics trained. Mm-hmm. And he really thought um, like a screenwriter does. Um, so I learned a lot just working with him and thinking about, like, you know, rethinking 
uh, like my instincts as someone who like goes and films and edits um, into a way that's like more traditional in terms of like how audiences and how storytellers for a long time, especially in the American way of storytelling, um, tell stories. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, and it's the same process has happened on this film. Um, and now I'm getting to a point where it's like, okay, like, I feel like I have like enough of a grasp on, uh, like what storytelling is to me personally, that I can like start to have my own spin on it now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you learn the formula before you can break it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so could you tell us about this, this new film, this new documentary? Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, it's about these two young men in Chicago who are just, they don't really have a lot going on in their lives and um, they're just trying to take the next step forward, you know, like get a job and um, move forward. The problem is that they live in neighborhoods in Chicago most affected by gun violence. I mean, guys are dying all around them. Um, so one of them is, uh, you know, very likely to be a, a perpetrator of this violence. It's just happening so much and you come to understand why and you feel for why that would be for him, you know. Um, the other guy is just uh, totally not a perpetrator. He, he could become a victim of gun violence. I mean, uh, he has multiple people die even over the course of the film. Um, what they do is they sign up for these programs that uh, are newly started in Chicago. They uh, essentially pay them to train them to learn a construction trade. And along the way, they get mentorship. Um, so you're just on the ground for a year embedded with this process, these two guys in two different neighborhoods and two different programs, uh, just doing this emotional, mental work of seeing life beyond themselves. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I'm excited to see it. Well, thank you so much, Bing, for doing this. Thanks so much for doing this podcast. I mean, you know, <laughs> more informa- information is power, and yeah. I wish I would have gotten more information than I did when I was younger. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Sky Dylan Robbins is our co-producer. George Itzak is our booking producer. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And Rough Cut is a part of the Video Consortium, which is a creative community of the world's top emerging nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're scattered all around the globe, and we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Milan, Paris, and with many more to come. If you want to join and become a member, check us out at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, go to roughcutpodcast.com. Visit us on Instagram at roughcutpodcast and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, subscribe and rate our show. 